I want to begin with a question. How many real relationships do you have? I mean real relationships. I mean, how many people do you sit down with face to face and talk about your lives? You put them on one hand, maybe. How many people care enough about you to take time out of their day to listen to you? How many people do you care about enough to take time out of your day and listen to them? How many people are truly invested in helping you grow? How many people are you truly invested in helping grow? How much of your time is put toward helping others grow? Character-wise, spiritually. Is there any time at all in your daily life, in your daily week, where you're concerned with the maturity of someone else in Christ? It's a real question that every believer has to ask themselves because this morning we're going to talk about discipleship and we're going to talk about the nature of what it means to follow Christ. And as you think about those, those questions, and I encourage you to think about them throughout the week, let me help you out a little bit. Social media does not count. It's about people who you actually sit across from and look them in the eye and ask them how they're doing and pray for them and work through life's issues with you. Because many people have never considered this. Many people go throughout their day and this doesn't even come into their minds. What am I spending my time in? What am I investing in? Am I investing in things that matter for eternity? Do I care for people? Or am I just going through my daily life with things that are absorbed with myself? It makes me sad to think about a generation of people and multiple generations of people who are growing up uh, just inundated with technology. For many of us, we remember a time when we didn't have a phone on our hip. Our phone was attached to the wall. We remember a time when you sat down and talked to someone for hours. You remember a time when when you left, people could not get a hold of you. And when you went, went out or you had dinner, your parents said, we're not going to answer the phone because this is time for family to sit down and talk to each other. How far we've come. We can't go five minutes without our phones 10 minutes without social media. Everybody's on Facebook. We know all the highlights of everyone's life. But we don't know what they're really struggling with. We don't know what they really care about. We don't know where they really need help. Because Facebook is your own Sports Center top 10. It's your own highlight reel. You tell people what you want them to see. But in reality, what it looks like to be a Christian is to go deeper. It's to get involved in the mud and the ugliness of people's lives the way Jesus did. You know, a lot of analytics go into what makes effective communication. People talk about these nonverbal cues and all that, but regardless of all the science aside, unless you are in front of someone, you can't see the reaction on their face. You can't hear the tone of their voice. You can't see their body language. You can't observe them, and they can't observe you. Jesus told us to make disciples, but what does that look like? Discipleship is typically marked by three things, instruction, observation, and imitation. Instruction, observation, and imitation. As Paul said, Paul began with his doctrine. And he told them about his life and his example, and then he told them to follow me as I follow Christ. That is the life of discipleship in the believers. And this idea of discipleship is purely Christian. This doesn't exist anywhere else. This idea that we can grow into Christ's image over time together. And it's part of the nature of who we are. But what is discipleship? You want a simple discipleship definition. It is personal investment over time 
in order to grow in the image of Christ. That easy. Personal investment over time in order to grow in the image of Christ. It's simple. That's it. It's not complicated. You don't need a 12 ways to. You don't need um, a 15-week course on, on how to disciple. But as we look around the room and as we think about our own lives, how difficult is that? How difficult is it to be able to invest in people over time and to want to see them grow in the image of Christ? Ezra knows how hard it is. And it's so difficult to think about investing in someone other than ourselves. It's so difficult in our lives that are so busy, involved with so many other things, to stop thinking about ourselves for a moment and invest in someone else. Or ask the question, is anyone investing in me? This is the nature of Christian growth. We do it together. We, we do it in community. And that's why membership today is going to be so important because we are agreeing to do that together. We're agreeing to be involved in each other's lives. We're agreeing to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to help each other grow into the image of Christ. That's why we gather. We don't gather for some just empty religious service. These are people who see the need to be formed to the image of Christ. We are, we are broken. We are messed up. And it is only in Christ where we begin to be made whole again. And so we're going to look at some of the helpful marks and practices of, of Christ this morning. And we're going to do something really crazy. We're going to look at what Jesus did. Try to learn from it. Something radical. I know that's, that's not popular culture. Let's try to find some new way to do things. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And his, and his teaching and the way he dealt with people is as applicable today as it was then. And here's the reality, because even if you are being discipled by someone else or someone else is discipling you, you are ultimately being discipled by Christ if it is done right. He is working in them and in you to grow you both. And as we'll see this morning, uh, discipleship is reciprocal. And so I want us to look at our text this morning in John. Open up to John chapter 1 for me. John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two disciples who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the witness that it holds. Thank you for the faithful witness of the disciples. Thank you that like you sought them in their sin and bought them with your blood, you've done the same for each one of us that trusts in you. Thank you for Christ and his example to us. Thank you for his example as a servant, as a patient mentor as a patient teacher 
as a loving counselor. And Lord, I just pray that we are people who grow in the image of Christ, that we are transformed by his word, that we are under the authority of his word so that we can stand before you in the image of Christ like he is spotless and blameless. Just pray that this text this morning would teach us, shape us, and direct our lives. We do it all to the glory of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. All right, so there's a couple of quick observations here. We're moving from more of these doctrinal statements, and John is full of doctrine, but now the narrative begins. There's some action here. You see the the interplay. Can you read this and start to see the exchange between John and Jesus and the disciples? We see words like see and find and follow and heard and walked and stayed. These are action words. So there is, in this seemingly small interchange, there's a lot of action going on here. We're going to look at what some of these interchanges can teach us. Uh, but one of the things I want to, to bring up before we go any further, starting in verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And as we get into this account, we see them trust in Jesus. But then this might seem to contradict, if you're familiar with, with Matthew and Luke, where Jesus calls them from the boat. Are these two things contradicting each other? Because at first read, it may seem that way. Because in Matthew and in Luke 5, uh, Jesus calls them while they're fishing and they throw down their nets and he makes them fishers of men. What's, what's going on here? Because he seems to call them here, but there also seems to be another call there. Well, I think it's helpful to find out where we are chronologically here. Remember, John is talking about the first week of Jesus' ministry. So early on in Jesus' ministry, as we said a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees had questions for him. He baptized Jesus, and now he's running into his first disciples. Now, so Luke gives us this broader timeline. In Luke chapter 5, this is where Jesus calls them when they are fishing. But in Luke chapter 4, he is teaching in the synagogues, he is preaching, and he is healing all throughout Galilee. So Jesus' ministry was going on for a little while, and probably what happened was that he met these disciples very early on, and a seed was planted in them. And as Jesus' ministry was established and as it went out into the region around where, where he lived, his following grew. And when it was time to bring it outside of, of Galilee, he began to call the disciples to himself. And so what happened with these disciples is they began to follow him spiritually before they actually followed him physically. I think many of us Christians can understand the tension here. Because if if you came to Christ at a later age, you're like, oh, wait, my eyes are open and everything's new, but I still have to go to work tomorrow. And you have a hard time reconciling those things. But many times what happens to them happens to us. Where our whole world is changed, we encounter the Messiah. But yet the bills have to be paid. We have to go to work. We have to go back to doing the things that we do. But those spiritual seeds are planted in us. And for many of us, one day there will be a very different calling. And this is what will happen later on with the disciples. But right now we're just dealing with that initial meeting of these disciples and Jesus. So hopefully we're good with with where we are. There is no contradiction in the text. If you look at Luke 4 and 5, you'll, you'll see that timeline played out. So the next day, again, John was standing with the two disciples. And he looked at Jesus and he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, if you weren't here last week, we spent most of our time talking about the Lamb of God. And John proclaimed it last week. He's proclaiming it again in this text. And so we're going to reiterate it because this is so important. 
Because this is the title that would have been very incendiary. Because lambs are innocent and they are gentle and they will never hurt anyone. And that's kind of the point because they were the ultimate sacrifice. When Abraham is bringing Isaac up the mountain and God told him to take your son up to sacrifice him, Abraham in full faith said God will provide a sacrifice for himself. And God provided a lamb in exchange for the son of Abraham. And when the people of Israel were in Egypt and they were in slavery and bondage to the pagan Egyptians, the lamb was the anointing over their doorposts. The blood of that lamb covered them when the angel of death came over all of the firstborns of Egypt. And the lamb was their protection as they left. And as we saw last week in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would come to take the sins for God's people, who would bear their iniquities and would heal them by his stripes, when he went to his own death, he was like a lamb. Without a word, without making a sound, this gentle, spotless Lamb. And then we saw the crescendo of all of the spiritual tension that goes on throughout all time in Revelation. When it was only in Revelation 5, it was only the Lamb that was worthy to open the scroll. And when the Lamb could open the scroll and see what God was unfolding, all of heaven uh, rings out in praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, worthy to receive honor and glory and praise forever. And all of heaven kneeled down and worshipped the Lamb. And then we saw in the recreation of all things, the river of life that comes out of the throne of God. It is the throne of God and the Lamb that is the healing of the nations. And so this proclamation of the Lamb of God is not just some throwaway comment. This is the essential gospel of who Jesus is. Not only God in flesh but the perfect sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice. The only means for reconciliation between God and man is his blood because it's either his blood or ours. And when John says, behold the Lamb of God, anyone who knew their Old Testament, the Tanakh of of the Jews, would have paid attention because this should bring some images to mind. And so here's where we are. And so John is standing with his disciples, probably these young teenagers, and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And they turn and they see someone walk by. This would get really awkward if someone did that for us. Like if, if someone proclaimed what we were most known for, like, you know, behold the class president of Seminole High School or behold the bowling champion of Seminole County or whatever, behold the, the highest score on Candy Crush or um, whatever thing you are most known for. That would be kind of ridiculous and be embarrassing for us. But for Jesus, it was, it was appropriate. This is who he was. This is what John was called to do. This proclamation, if John didn't, he would have been being disobedient. Behold the Lamb of God and these young disciples pay attention. And they listen because in verse 37 it says, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. This is the result of faithful preaching. They followed Jesus. John wasn't trying to build a flock around himself. John wasn't trying to exalt himself as the center of his ministry. He wanted them to follow Jesus. Uh, There's this term that exists in uh, territorial selfish preachers called uh, sheep stealing. And so 
because pastors by nature, sorry to break this to you, they're very territorial and they like to hoard resources and people. And so if a sheep goes from one, because uh, they're not getting fed somewhere and they go to another church, it's called sheep stealing. Um, that's just it's, that's the term that's used. But John didn't see this here because they're Jesus's sheep. John, John glories and rejoices in his sheep following Jesus. And this is when John's teaching moves from propositional, so just information, to personal. This is when it moves from what they know to what has actually changed their life. They heard John call him the Lamb of God. They heard John's teaching. They heard him say that he was preparing the way for the Lord. And then here he is. Imagine being in that moment. Imagine being a disciple of John who said, there's another coming, there's another coming, there's another coming. There he is. How could you not follow? A faithful disciple will turn from whatever he was following, no matter how good it is, and turn to follow Jesus. Because Jesus said, there was no one like John who ever walked the earth. If you're going to follow a man who is not the God-man, follow John. That's not the point. Disciple will turn from the best teacher that mankind has to offer and turn to the Messiah, God himself. And so as they turn, Jesus turned to them and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? It's an important question. What are you seeking? Jesus wanted to get to the heart of the matter. Jesus is not concerned with just empty religious devotion. What are you seeking? This is a real question for every person in this room. What are you seeking? What is it? What are you seeking in this life? Is it just to be happier? Is it to feel better today than you felt yesterday? Why are you here? Is it just, are you just seeking some religious experience, a place to belong? Or do you really want to know the Lamb of God? Or do you really want to know how you can be reconciled to God? I love that Jesus just cuts right to the heart of the matter. Doesn't beat around the bush. What are you seeking? And they respond as any young pupil would. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Uh, in, in the Greek, this is literally, where are you abiding? Uh, and so this is figurative and, and, and literal. Okay, where, where are you staying? Like, where are you sleeping at night? Um, but where are you remaining? Because we want to be where you are. Uh, and, and this is um, what good disciples do. They want to be where their teacher is. We don't have this in our culture because our students uh, clock in at, at 12.01 and they clock out at 12.55 and or whatever time you go in and out of class. And that's the only time you stand in front of, of, of your teacher. But throughout, throughout most of history, when you found a teacher, when you found a good teacher, you would leave everything and follow them. You would sit with them day and night. The old Greek philosophers would walk around town and their students would be with them just observing them, just listening to them talk. This was part of, of their culture, and this is what they were responding to. Where are you going to be? We want to be where you are. Do we want to be with him? Do we want to abide with him? Now, obviously, we can't sit at his feet. We can't sleep, uh, sleep where he slept. We can't hear his words. But do our lives reflect us desiring to abide in him? Do our lives reflect the change that the Spirit has done in us? Do we want to grow in him? Do we want to be near to him? Do we want to meditate on his word day and night? Do we want to be in fellowship with his people? 
Are we disciples who wants to be about our Savior's business? I have a good friend, uh, one of the first, he runs a pretty big ministry in, in town, and it's one of the first people I met when I came to Sanford. And he was very welcoming to me. And as we met over the months and I told him the things that were, that were going on, he was so excited for me. And he asked, how can I help? And he said something that, that I will always remember. He said, because God is working there. And wherever God is working, I want to be a part of that. I love that. Not I'm building my own kingdom or my own ministry, but wherever God is working, I want to be a part of that. I want to see people's lives transformed. I want to see the gospel proclaimed. How can I help? As believers, this is what we should be known for, who want to be a part of what God is doing. Forgetting everything else that that, that goes on, we get to be about our master's business. We get to be where he is and where he is working and in the people he is working in. Amen? So he responds in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. There is a promise to those who come. Jesus promises that those who come to him, truly seek him, they will see. And the response of them is they came and they saw and they stayed. All day. Their devotion changed. Whatever we were doing, this is better. I don't care what was going on before, all day long I want to sit and hear what the Messiah has to say. The Lamb of God is speaking to me. I want to hear. Their devotion changed. Jesus helped grow them by investing in them. Jesus could have had other plans. So I've got this scheduled. I've got, I got this scheduled. He said, no, we just want to be with you. Come and see. He sat down with them and he taught them. Prayed with them. Cared for them. How should we try to do anything different as, as, as Christians than what Christ did? And there's this great mutual recognition between teacher and student. They, they understood their roles. Now, discipleship requires that recognition of, of, of roles. There will be a time when someone is caring for you. There will be a time when you are caring for someone. Uh, a wise brother told me that every Christian in every season of their life should have a Paul and should have a Timothy. In every season of your life, someone more mature should be pouring into you, and you should be pouring into someone more immature. And that's how we disciple. And that's how how we grow. And as we care for one another in Christ, we are growing into his image. And he is glorified through our actions. He said, come and see. Because he's going to give them what they wanted to see literally. But the things that they didn't even know that they could see when he opens their eyes spiritually. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one was Andrew. Many of us would just read over this and not ask the question, well, who was the other one? Because the other one is never mentioned here. Uh, and as I said early on in John, that John never mentions himself by name, the Apostle John. John is so humble that he doesn't want any credit. He, wants, he does not want to detract from Jesus at all. But John is indeed the other one here. Because there's an important detail that I skipped over. So they stayed with him uh, that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now John, at the time he was writing this, 
was probably in his 70s or 80s, and he was a teenager when this happened. But that many years later, he remembered the hour that he met Jesus. Do you remember the hour that you met Jesus? Do you remember the moment when everything changed? John is giving his testimony, and it is still fresh in his mind after all of those decades. And he wants you to know that my testimony is true. He says this at the end of his gospel, because I was there. I remember the hour. I remember when I saw him. I saw the miracles. I heard the teaching. And John was the only faithful one who stood at the cross. All the rest of the disciples scattered. I saw him die, and I saw the empty tomb. I was there at the very beginning. This is the witness of the gospel that we are reading this morning. And the first thing he did, as any good brother should, he went and found his brother. Some will come to Christ through faithful preaching like John the Baptist, but many more will come by the, by the witness of others. The first thing he did, uh, excuse me, this is, this is Andrew now. Um, Andrew, the first thing he does is goes to find his brother, Peter. Uh, verse 41, he found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Jesus gives two parables in Matthew 13. Uh, one about a field where there's a treasure in it and one about a, a valuable pearl. And in both instances, he said the kingdom of God is like. When you find this valuable treasure in a field, when you find this valuable pearl, you will sell everything that you have to get your hands on it. That was what was welling up in Andrew. We, we, we found it. Forget everything. Drop what you're doing, Peter. Come now. Or Simon at the time. Of course he goes to tell his brother, wouldn't you? I have so many people who come to Christ and their first desire is that all of their family should know the Messiah that has changed their life. And they want so badly for the ones that they love the most to know the one that they love the most. And it's, it's heartbreaking. You see, my eyes have been opened. I can see there's someone who has cleansed my sin. He's taken away my shame. He's made me a new person. I want him to take away your sin and your shame and make you a new person. I want nothing more for you. This is the desire of Andrew as he goes to Peter. And this is the desire of every one of us when we speak to those that, that we love. We tell them, I found the Messiah. Come and see. So when he says he found the Messiah, uh, the Messiah doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And we're so used to using Christ, it's become a curse word in our, in our culture. And as uh, Hunter jokingly said, some people think that's his last name. Um, but this word Christ comes from uh, Mashiach, this, this Hebrew Messiah. I mean, this is greater than finding Atlantis, El Dorado, an alien landing, Al Capone's vault, vault and a really rare Pokemon and whatever else you can think of that is hard to find. All of those put together do not compare to the Messiah. Because imagine what it would be like to be around Jesus. Andrew's just there for a few moments. and He's like, we found the Messiah. Jesus made quite an impression. This word Messiah, um, we read Psalm 132 earlier. And in there twice is referenced the anointed one of God. 
What this means is that there was a, a promised one who would come from the line of David, this, this divine king who would be anointed of God, who would be set apart by God for a specific rule. And his kingdom would never perish. His kingdom would be forever. And this prophecy about the Messiah is throughout the Psalms, and it is sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. So to say that I found the Messiah, saying found our people have been waiting for this for thousands of years, and he's here. Sadly, many Jews today are still waiting for the Messiah. As we saw last week, they avoid Isaiah 53. But these young Jewish boys knew their scriptures. They knew it was coming out of Jesus' mouth. They knew the prophecies that John was fulfilling. They said, we found the Messiah. Jesus says in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. There is a not yet uh, quality to the kingdom of God. It is not of this world. It's not something you can see, but yet is in your midst. It is already. Because those who trust in him are under his kingly rule and his protection. And they are citizens of his kingdom that is unshakable and it will never pass away. So when the Messiah comes, it's not just to shake up little Galilee. It's to shake up all of history. It's to bring in citizens who reign with him in glory forever. And us being united in Christ, we are united under this messianic king. When we say we are united in Christ, it's not just Jesus of Nazareth. It's not just the son of God. Yes, he is. But he is the king who has the right to rule heaven and earth for all of eternity. Sometimes we say the word Christ and we don't think about the weight in it. Every time you think of Christ, think of the messianic king, the anointed one of God who came to reconcile a people to himself and to reconcile all heaven and earth, to make all things new and to reign in power and glory forever. This is the Christ that they found. This is the Christ that, that we confess. This is the Christ that we find our unity in. Verse 42. We found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, um, You are Simon, son of John. Uh, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, so I want to spend a little bit of time on this because this is important to understand. Uh, one of the next things we learn about disciples here is that disciples tell like Deshaun said earlier, like we heard Elisa tell her testimony. And they also bring people to Jesus. They tell you, I found the Messiah, come and see. So there's this, this quality of faithful disciples who speak about what they have experienced, who they've met, what Christ has done in their lives, and they bring others with them. So this is what Andrew is, is doing. And he brings him before Jesus, and Jesus looks at him. This is where the English language fails us. Because in, in, the, in the Greek, uh, this is Jesus sizing him up. He looks intently at him. So Jesus is kind of staring him up and down. Peter, I know you. I know that you are loud and brash and inside you're a coward. But I'm going to make a rock out of you. So Jesus looks at him intently, stares into his soul. It says, you are Simon, which is his Hebrew name, son of John. You shall be called Cephas or Kephas, depending on who teaches your Aramaic. Either way, that's, that's the Aramaic word for rock, um, which Peter, Petros, is Greek. 
So at this point, Peter has three names. He's got a Hebrew name, an Aramaic name, and a Greek name. Uh, very confusing. And I, I do want to get into his name because it's really important. This helps us understand Christianity as, um, as it has progressed throughout the ages. But one of the first things I want you to understand is that when someone says, you, you will now be called, that gives them authority to name something. In the garden, when God told Adam that you have the authority to name the animals, that gives him authority and dominion over them. When Jesus calls a disciple, he says, now you are called. He is exercising his authority over them. And Jesus' disciples allow him to determine who they are called to be. This is important because many people come to Christ, say, I want to be this. I'm going to go here or I'm not going to go there. This is what my ministry is going to be. This is how I'm going to work. But as you know, if you come to Christ, your name will change. Your identity will change. Your priorities will change. The way you, the way you work will change. The way you look at others will change. Lisa talked about having patience and kindness and joy that she did not have before. Things she didn't know she needed or knew she wanted. But Jesus will change you. And it will always be better than anything you could imagine. Because Simon was content with being a fisherman. Jesus says, no, I'm going to make you a rock. It's what he does to those he loves. He takes us from something humble and unassuming, something greater than we could ever imagine for ourselves. So let's talk about his name for just a moment here. Um, we're so used to hearing about uh, Peter being talked about as the rock. I want to talk about the theological implications here because this is important. So Petros in, in, the, in the Greek, um, it means rock, but it's a particular kind of rock. It's more like boulders. It's it's a, a rock that is broken off another rock, a rock that can actually be moved or, or, or thrown. So he is a rock, but he has broken off a larger rock. Petra, so you've got Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, the transliteration in English, is Peter, small rock. Then you've got Petra, the rock. It's like a mountain. The mountain cannot be moved. And so Peter is this detached stone or boulder that is broken off of a mountain. A massive rock that is unmovable. So, so Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to make you a mountain. I'm going to break you off of my mountain. So this is where it comes full circle. Because in Matthew 16, this passage where Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Guess what word he uses there? He doesn't use the rock. He could have said, on this Petros. I will build my church. On this little rock, I will build my church. But he says, no, on this Petra, this mountain, I will build my church. And this is where the Roman Catholic Church gets their idea of apostolic succession. That popes have their power from Peter. Because Peter is the rock. But in Jesus' own confession, Peter's the little rock. Jesus is the big rock. And so to build your entire structure on the little rock, who is only meant to point to the big rock, is a huge fallacy. The little rock confesses the big rock. Just for more proof, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the man who would build his house on the rock, and the waves would come and the storm would come, and it would not bring it down. 
the rock that they built it on, guess which one it was? It was not Petros. They weren't building their rock on Peter. They're building their rock on the rock of our salvation, which is also in Psalm 132 that we read earlier. Maybe it was. Um, the rock, the Petra. The foundation of our salvation is Christ, not Peter. Now, Peter will play a role. Peter will be a, a rock that is broken off of the, the, the big rock and will be a stalwart in the early church. He will be a faithful, faithful uh, proclaimer of the gospel and a faithful discipler of peoples. He's never to stand in the place of Christ, never to take headship over Christ's people, never to stand in his place above in, in, in the church. And this is really important to understand. Just by understanding the nuances of two little words sound very close together, but have a lot of implication. As in discipleship, the wise man built his house on the rock. And as followers of Christ, everything we do is rooted in him. So you just have a few kind of thoughts as we, as we finish up. What do we learn about discipleship today? I mean, one, we've seen that people come, some come from preaching, some come from uh, witness, but all will stop following what they were following and follow Jesus, who's the Messiah King, but also the Lamb of God, the acceptable sacrifice. You cannot separate these two. Because if he, if he is just this distant king who does not care about us, we still have the problem of sin. Your sin must be accounted for before God. And if he just is this, this, this quiet lamb who has led to the, the, the slaughter, and he's not on the throne, then, his, then what he did has no power and authority beyond it. But because it is the, the king who is accomplishing the, the sacrifice, no one can shake it. So when you turn to what you were following to follow Christ, there is nothing more sure than the rock that is unshakable for all eternity. They must come to him and abide with him. Disciples didn't say, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus today because he sounds good and I'm going to follow Buddha tomorrow. Jesus changed them. And it made such an impression on them that however many months later when he came and called them out of the ship, they didn't even fold their nets up. They just dropped them and ran. To be with Christ meant more than anything. Their livelihood, their family. Disciples follow the lamb. And they turn from whatever they were following before just to be with him. And there's this reciprocal relationship where you come to him, seeking him, and he teaches you, and he grows you. And discipleship is like that. When we do that with one another, we let what Christ has taught us teach others. We let us Christ has taught them. And in that way, we, we, we sharpen iron. And we, we grow together and we challenge one another. And as members of the body of Christ, we will do that. And if you're just looking to go through religious motions, this is probably not the right place for you. I'll be honest. You can come here as long as you want. But if you're just going through the motions, if you just want another thing during your week to pat yourself on the back like you did something good, don't bother. Because our lives have been changed. Nothing will ever be the same. We can never go back. 
we are growing in the image of Christ. But if you want to be someplace where people will care about you and will spend time with you and will look you in the eye and, and actually invest in you over time so that you will grow in the image of Christ, that is who we're going to be. And that is what faithful disciples of Christ look like. And those who come to him, allow him to change their name and their priorities. Because before Christ, our, let's be honest, our world is all about us. And after Christ, our world is mostly about us. But when he comes to you and he calls you, you are now different. You are now a child. You are now in a new family. You have a new identity. And nothing will ever be the same. And you can fight against that all you want. But you will be fighting against who you are. It's better to surrender. And say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And watch what amazing things he does in your life. And most importantly, everything that God has planned is better than we could ever imagine. He thinks, or we, we think, that when we get called from our sin, it's bringing us out of our, our comfort. How can I leave this behind? This is what I've always known. This is everything that I've found meaning in my entire life. I don't care what it is. It's rubbish compared to what Jesus offers. It is always better. The little fishermen thought they'd be in their daddy's business forever. Started this worldwide movement that has, has brought billions of people to faith in Christ throughout the centuries. Come and see the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the witness of John. Thank you that like these young boys in Galilee, that you found us without identity, without name, without value, without place in the world, and you called us to be your own. You gave us a new name. You gave us a new life. You gave us new priorities. When we change our direction to follow you, our devotion turns to you. And you, you, we let you shape us into who you want us to be. Lord, I just pray for the believers here that we would never forget the awe and wonder of the moment we met you and that we'd continue to want to abide in you and be with you. And for those who don't know you here, Lord, for the first time, their eyes would be opened, that they would see, that their hearts would desire you, something that is unshakable for all of eternity, to be reconciled to God through the blood of the Lamb so that they can stand under the protection of the Messiah. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.